This is the CMS Colloquium podcast for March 3rd, 2010. I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. This colloquium features Nick Monfort, Associate Professor of Digital Media here at MIT, and his talk, Code and Platform and Computational Media. You can find all of our podcasts in the iTunes Store and on our website at cms.mit.edu. CMS uh, colloquium series uh, continues. Uh, oh, this is even um, this is even making noise today. All right, it's exciting. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming on a rainy, uh, grumpy uh, day outside. Uh, uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Professor Nick Montfort of the Program in Writing and Humanistic Studies, uh, who'll be telling us about his work today, and I hope we can uh, explore and challenge uh, his work in the hours to come. He's a little uh, under the weather, but I don't think we should give him a break because of that. Uh, so, uh, welcome to Nick. Uh, Nick has his uh, PhD in Computer and Information Science from uh, University of Pennsylvania. He has a master's degree uh, uh, from uh, the Media Lab uh, and uh, from Boston University in Creative Writing Poetry. Uh, his most recent book uh, is co-written with Ian Bogust. It's called Racing the Beam. Uh, he'll be talking a little bit about that today uh, and his work in platform studies. And I look forward to finding out what plat more about what platform studies is all about. Uh, please join me in welcoming Nick Monfort. All right, so I want to start with a question. Uh, what was that that we <laughs> just saw? Um, some ideas, uh, could be from the Discovery Channel. Uh, uh, <laughs> ah, someone knows, <laughs> some group of people knows. That, uh, that was a demo. Um, can, we un can, we, can we unpack that a bit, even maybe rifle through it? Uh, what, is, what does that mean, a demo? Because I think not everyone knows what that object, what that computational media object even is. Well, one way of looking at what a demo is, or an intro, um, a product that comes from the demo scene, from a type of cultural production where people totally outside of the art world, you'll never see that in a museum unless things change a great deal. And the most radical curators, uh, uh, Christiani Paul is not gonna put that in the Whitney even though Yanhi Cheng Heavy Industries Dakota was in there. You're not gonna see it in the Museum of the Moving Image even though Tetsuya Mizuguchi's Res was in there. It exists aside from, apart from game development, from academic industrial research. Um, and that program that produced that is this, it is 4K of code, machine code that runs on a Windows computer, Windows XP or better. That is the entire program that produced everything you saw and heard. H how can we understand that? How can we understand what is going on in this situation? You know, Marshall McLuhan said that giving a newspaper to an Aborigine you know, results in this total bewilderment, bafflement, that you can't tell whether the images uh, that we recognize as photographs of things are even supposed to represent something 3D. And I think that all of us are, myself included, are Aborigines in this case, looking at an object like this. 
nice to know that the code is that big. It's nice to know that this is a low-density flat mesh displaced with a procedural vertex shader uh, that doesn't use any texture maps, um, that it's uh, deferred and computed procedurally in a full-screen quad. And uh, we can see uh, here that these are not uh, artist collectives. They don't have the names of people that we'd see on SIGGRAPH papers. Um, people like uh, Mentor, Puryx, uh, Blueberry are working on this at parties, gatherings. They come together and, and deal with that. Um, I, I suggest that this is something that's, uh, that's a big challenge to figure out what's happening where people are using computational power to create something aesthetic, but it doesn't fit in any category that we're ready to think about. Just want to show you a bit more, um, show you this uh, again. So what type of reaction might we have to this? Uh, stunned silence, I think, is a, is a good, good one to start with. Uh, if we were to constrain ourselves to one word in reply, we might say something like, uh, wow, or uh, damn. Uh, my colleague uh, Juno Diaz would have some other words that we might use in this, say, in this case. Um, and I think the sort of two-word reaction that uh, I would come up with is avatar fail. Uh, this, to me, is uh, an incredible uh, type of cultural production that doesn't fit into this industrial mode and filmmaking and uh, is doing something really radical. I'm much more interested to dive into um, not uh, things like Flame or whatever systems they're using to do uh, uh, different sorts of uh, uh, video processing uh, or understanding the papyrus font that's used to subtitle things. You know, uh, I'm much more interested to dive into this type of world and see what happens here. And <coughs> so, you know, um, one of, the, one of the ways we could characterize this is, it is true to say that this output of a computer program, this output of a demo, is a music video, okay, where the music and images are both generated. Um, and in fact, we might want to recognize that these came about after music videos in relationship to them, if we wanted to study them, right? So we wouldn't only want to know about computer graphics, but we would want to know about what's going on culturally. So we might look and see what's been written, uh, what type of articles have been written about the demo scene in music videos, and uh, we'd see none. Um, there are some that use both terms, 22 of them, in the entire corpus of scholarly work that's been produced to date and that has been indexed by Google. Um, Henry Lowood talks about the demo scene when he writes about machinima, which actually is what many of these articles are about. But um, no one has actually studied uh, the work of the demo scene uh, in comparison to the music video. The name for that object is an intro or demo. So, uh, but uh, you shouldn't read uh, too much into that as uh, it's, a, it's a demonstration of the programming uh, aptitude and the uh, ability to connect computation to aesthetics. But it's not, uh, it doesn't, uh, it's, it's not showing off um, 
you know, that, uh, that uh, I have a new um, widget that I made for, um, uh, uh, or a new iPhone app, and I'm, I'm showing you how it works. Well, that's one interpretation, but it seems, I mean, does that, does that make you want to run out and buy a Microsoft Windows machine, or does it make you want to um, understand something about the cultural activity that's going on? I mean, if it, if it makes me interested in Microsoft Windows, it's only so I can run things like this on the computer. So I, I wouldn't say it's something that is, a, uh, you know, that is meant to function or that does function as advertising for, uh, for anything. So, so uh, I have a suggestion for what to do about computational media issues like this, where we have something that's culturally embedded, that it requires deep technical knowledge. I think the USS CMS should send an away team to try to explore issues like this, uh, to try to investigate new approaches to understanding technology in uh, culture. Glad I'm not wearing a red shirt. So <clears throat> there are approaches that are coming about. It's not that no one has uh, thought of this, has started to work on it, but the work is just beginning now. And uh, some of the things that have happened are uh, in the, in the um, name of software studies, a new series from MIT Press. Noah Wardipfru and Matthew Fuller and Lev Manovich are co-editing the first book in that series is Expressive Processing by Noah Wardipfru. There's also uh, code studies. There's right now a very, very active discussion on a Ning site that Mark Marino has set up under the, uh, under the name Critical Code Studies, um, where, for instance, uh, we've had um, uh, a vigorous 5,000 words, at least, of discussion about uh, a one-line Commodore 64 program. Um, and there's what I'm going to focus on today, Platform Studies, which is um, uh, something that Ian Bogust and I have developed as a concept and also as a book series. Um, it's a name that, um, that uh, Ian and I give to the practice of exploring the relationships between hardware and software design of standardized computing platforms and the creative work that's been produced on those platforms. The concept inspired by the success of bibliography and textual studies, uh, which have interrogated books as objects to learn more about publishing, reading, and the literary. There are other inspirations as well, but that's one that was important to us in working on our book. Um, and the book that we did is a study of this particular platform, a nice object of study because of its popularity, simplicity, and influence. That's, of course, the Atari video computer system later in its life called the Atari 2600. Our book about this system is the first in the platform studies series. It's called Racing the Beam, and it shows one possible platform studies approach, not the only type of investigation, which uses methods from computing systems, architecture, the material history of the text, to connect hardware design to cultural practices and the history of video gaming and to computing overall. Uh, now, while other video game consoles may be ripe for a similar sort of study, and we certainly think they, they are, there are also many other types of platforms that are worth consideration as well, including software platforms or programming. Basic, Java, Flash, HyperCard, home computers of the late 1970s and 80s, and particular operating systems. Platform studies is not a subset of game studies. It's a family of approaches that's general to new media, to all sorts of computational systems that have been and are used creatively. To understand a bit about the context in which the Atari VCS was developed, and to think about platform studies from a different angle, I want us to step back in time before the 1977 launch of the VCS. Uh, some of you may recognize the game on the left. Yes? 
Yes, I think many of you do. That's, uh, that's Pong, built by Al Alcorn, um, uh, to the specification of Noam Bushnell at Atari. And this one on the right. It, yes. Ah, Zork is uh, influenced by this. Uh, Zork is a descendant of this one. But this is earlier. This is from 1973, a game called Hunt the Wumpus by Gregory Yab, um, whose head is now frozen in uh, New Mexico in Alcor. Uh, these games aren't just different on the surface. They're different in how they represent the underlying world or play space. So Pong offers a continuous two-dimensional plane bounded on the top and bottom. Hunt the Wumpus takes place on a discrete playing field, not the sort of grid that had been used in previous basic games, but a dodecahedron, roll-saving throw. Why are these games so different? Why are they different uh, on the surface and underneath? Of course, people have different ideas, so they make different games. But still, what factors or forces might have contributed to the creation of such radically different games? Maybe they were made at different times, because early on, people's thinking about computer games uh, was certainly advancing rapidly. A few years could have made a big difference. Uh, nice idea. But uh, the two games are actually developed at the same time, basically. The release of Pong coming in late 1972 and first publication of Hunt the Wumpus happening uh, as code in a magazine in 1973. Okay, so maybe it's that they were developed in very different places. We don't expect Japanese and American games to be similar. So we might find that games developed in different parts of the country, one in an urban area, one in a rural area. No. Actually, these games were developed within 17 miles of each other. Um, Hunt the Wampus in Menlo Park at the People's Computer Company, uh, People's Computer Center, and Pong at Atari's first office in Santa Clara. So uh, these games were created within a few miles of each other, within about a year, a year of each other, by it's worth noting, two college-educated American guys. Um, so again, what could have contributed to their being so different? <laughs> the simplest answer is they're made of different things. Uh, Pong, you see the code to Hunt the Wumpus here. Um, I'd like you to, to guess and hold in your mind your guess about how many lines of code there are in Pong. There are none. Pong is a circuit. It's uh, wires connecting electronic components. It has no ROM. It has no code. It has no processor. Um, on the other hand, Hunt the Wumpus is a basic program written at a computer terminal. Uh, there are radically different facilities provided by these two platforms, not only for display, a television versus a printer, uh, inputs, knobs and Pong and a keyboard and Hunt the Wumpus, but also different facilities for underlying representation, simulation of space, and enabling of play. In developing the idea of platform studies, we argue that all these differences are significant and that we should especially attend to ones that have been overlooked. And thinking about the VCS, these two games not only show us what sorts of games are being played uh, as the system is being developed, they can help us to recognize why the cartridge-based system was such a good concept. It used Atari's growing manufacturing ability, bringing together the advantages of a design and controlled hardware system with the general ability to code different sorts of games not playing only one or a small hardwired set. More could certainly be said about the history of video games before Pong. The 1972 game was not the first in this cabinet format. It was preceded by Nolan Bushnell's Computer Space, which itself was based on the PDP-1 game Space War. Pong wasn't original in terms of gameplay either. Ralph Baer had a tennis game like it on the Odyssey, which Bushnell had seen. Magnavox sued Atari, and Bushnell eventually settled. 
but that wasn't the first tennis-like video game either. A demo with a side view of the tennis court was put together in 1958 by Willie Higginbotham of Brookhaven National Laboratory. So successful video game development is really the story of transformation, porting, conversion, and adaptation, not one of striking originality. It's possible to see that as early as 1972, and I hope that sheds a little bit of light on why we want to think about the different platforms that video games have been developed on. So, jumping a few years to the development of the Atari VCS, uh, released at the end of 1977. Atari sought to design a machine that would play arcade games and games like them, but on interchangeable cartridges. This led to a very weird computer, one that really was unlike any before or since. It was unlike contemporary machines. It had to be affordable, selling for, uh, at the time, $199, which meant that its components had to be made or bought as cheaply as possible. These are its components, uh, uh, cut-rate um, off-the-shelf processor from um, Moss Technologies, uh, custom television interface adapter, which is where most of the, uh, the heart of the VCS and most of the effort of the development went into, uh, uh, into producing that, um, the Riot uh, peripheral interface for the joysticks and other controllers, and um, 128 bytes of, uh, of RAM. That's, uh, that's not a lot. Um, <laughs> suddenly, suddenly uh, tweeting doesn't seem so constrained anymore. Um, and then the cartridges uh, ran initially 2K of ROM and uh, uh, later 4. They, uh, using bank switching, expanded beyond that size, but that was the spec. Um, the design and memory architecture of the television interface adapter, or TIA, or TIA, depending upon um, uh, how you want to pronounce it, is um, very well suited for Pong-like games because of uh, the facilities it provides. And the fact that video games are, are displayed on uh, televisions, of course, implicates them in a cinematic space, this 2D surface. Um, and in fact, on the Odyssey, you even had 2D static overlays to create the screen as a drawing or image. From a technical perspective, the most important of these constraints is the lack of video RAM. Um, when a computer system draws an image today, and even for the most part back in 1977, it's done by blitting a region of memory to a computer screen. So you draw an image on an off-screen buffer, and then at the appropriate time, there's special hardware to copy that buffer across to the display, each frame, so the CPU can deal with the computing that it needs to do in the meantime. But the VCS doesn't have any video memory. To understand how it interfaces with the television, we have to remind ourselves a bit about how the TV works, or you probably don't have a TV like this, how the TV used to work, um, by pointing to an electron beam and how it sweeps in scan lines down the screen. On the VCS, the display was not drawn a screen at a time, but a line at a time, and registers had to be ready at each step as the image was sent across, line by line by line. The process was sometimes referred to as racing the beam by programmers. And only with some awareness of this constraint on programming can we begin to appreciate things such as Yars' Revenge by Howard Scott Washaw, which adapted the vector graphics arcade game Star Castle to the raster technology of the VCS and the TV. You'll notice that stripe in the middle of the screen is used on the cover of our book. Here's a quick summary of how it is drawn. There are two basic ways to create a random looking pattern like this. One, program a pseudo-random number generator, a complex function that looks random, or two, put some random-looking data in memory, ROM in this case, and then read that data. The first one's costly in terms of time because code has to run for each line on the screen. The second is quicker 
you just load what you want from ROM, but uh, it's costly in terms of space because a random looking pattern has to be stored. Warshaw did not do either one of these exactly, although his solution was more like the latter. Uh, in this part of the neutral zone kernel, this is from a disassembly of Yar's Revenge. The source code isn't available, but it's pretty straightforward to map the machine code to, um, to assembly. In this part of the neutral zone kernel, the values pointed to by neutral zone pointer are brought into the accumulator and masked against the contents of neutral zone masked. The accumulator value is used first as a pattern that's loaded onto a playfield register, and then after it's masked again as the playfield color. The label neutral zone pointer points to the same address as does another label, game timer. At this location, a count is stored that's continually incremented once each line, and it ranges over the entire addresses in cartridge ROM. The progression works its way through the code of the Yars Revenge cartridge, with each byte of code being loaded, transformed, and displayed on the screen. That is, the neutral zone uses a source of randomness that is already there in ROM. It is a display of the game's own code. Our book about the Atari video computer system, Racing the Beam, um, uh, is something in which we focus on this type of object. Right? So we see um, what we can learn by looking closely at something like this. Uh, and some people are worried about the implications, uh, humanistically, of focusing on uh, an object like this. Some fear we may be putting the cart before the horse. Um, I presume my friends in animal studies particularly would have this fear. Um, <clears throat> and some of the questions that we've gotten about platform studies, I think, are, are indicative of, uh, of our early um, inability to communicate about how this is really a cultural project and how it is rooted in um, the, the types of concerns that we have in comparative media studies. So when, for instance, someone asks us, platform study seems to align closely with other formalist approaches to games, can it also be linked to cultural interpretation? Obviously, the, the presupposition is that we still have to link it to cultural interpretation, that we somehow didn't do that yet, uh, when that's, that's really the project of our book. And so uh, I, I have to say that Ian and I are very glad to hear things like this articulated so that we can continue the conversation. Um, and when we, when we write about them, we, you know, we don't name uh, people who we think have, have misconceptions about the project. But, uh, <laughs> But, um, but rather, we try, to, uh, we try to take these as concerns, and, and this isn't something that only one person uh, thinks about platform studies. This is something that, um, that actually very widely um, uh, people have talked to us in many different academic contexts, not quite understanding how it is that focusing on the technology in this way is something that can be done with culture. So what we did is we actually uh, addressed at Digital Arts and Culture 2009 um, uh, in a paper, uh, frequently question answers. Um, uh, a few ideas that we wanted to that we wanted to make clear that, that that weren't in this early formulation. One is that platform studies is not about video games uh, exclusively. Uh, something I've said already in this talk, um, but uh, but something that that uh, bears repeating that it doesn't entail uh, hard technological determinism. In other words, uh, we're not simply looking at technologies as they exert influence on culture, but we're looking at them as they exist in culture. That uh, understanding that they are built in the first place for cultural purposes and cultural reasons. Of course, if you don't think technology has any influence on culture at all, uh, you're not going to be sold on this project. But, um, but you don't have to be a hard technological determinist. 
Um, it's not about uh, hardware exclusively. I also already mentioned that software platforms are important to us. And uh, it is focused on computational and programmed work. So there are other sorts of platforms. There are communication platforms. Um, although in, in this case, it, the discipline of communications has actually looked at those and studied those in some very interesting and powerful ways. So we, we don't object to people studying that more. But what we're trying to particularly encourage is an, an approach that bears on computational media, something that is now emerging, just as mass communications platforms emerged in the 20th century, as a significant part of our culture. And finally, that, um, uh, in fact, what we're interested in doing is not um, simply looking at technical details, but connecting technical details to culture. And I'm going to give uh, a little explanation of uh, Maya and Ian's view of, uh, of one way to slice the question of looking at computational media. Um, at the top level is concerns of reception and operation. Um, and this is uh, how do we play the game? What do we think about it? Um, what, is it what does it mean to us? Uh, but below that uh, and supporting that is uh, the question of interface. How is it that uh, the interface of the system that allows us to control the game uh, participates uh, culturally in um, scaffolding certain meanings, and then how also it connects to the underlying form and function of the game. And I want to um, make it clear that there's more to a computer system, I think a lot more, but there's more to a computer system than the interface. For instance, a chess program that um, pre presents a 2D or 3D chess board, or maybe just a chess notation. You don't have to have graphics at all to play chess against a computer. Those are all interface questions. But how it implements the rules of chess and how it plays chess against you are questions at the form and function level. Uh, beneath this, of course, uh, those forms and functions are written in code on most systems, not Pong. Um, but on most systems, uh, they are, in fact, programmed. And they could be programmed the same system that, that uh, functionally is identical could be uh, written in different programming languages in different ways. And then below that is the level of platform, which I've already talked about some today, but it's what the code is written on. Now, this is uh, close to. Uh, actually um, fairly close to what Lars Konzak in 2002 introduced in a paper uh, in which he talked about soul caliber. Um, and he thought that culture and context um, was the top layer on his model. Uh, uh, but that's wrong. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, <laughs> the way that I see it, uh, it seems that culture and context is something that permeates all of these layers. If it were something that only happened at the top, then in fact, it, it would be silly to run off and try to look at the cultural relevance of technical details of the system, because um, it's just the icing on the cake. But in fact, the reason that the Atari VCS is created as a system that is for two players with two inputs, two joysticks, that it has a handicap system that allows you to uh, change the difficulty level so an older and younger sibling, for instance, could play together, um, that it's, uh, even that it's wood-grained, uh, fake wood-grained. Um, and it uh, looks like a console, a, a music console or some other system, and is, is meant to show off its generality and uh, that it's not simply a game, but a system. All of these things are related to a perspective on gaming that was being developed along with that system in 1977. And this is a point that um, I've made since 2006. Um, uh, and, uh, but I think it's, a, it's such a predominant idea that um, 
that culture and context is something that's, that's happening up there as people think about games and operate them or people think about other digital media systems and operate them that um, it's, it's actually uh, uh, not at all obvious that this type of embedding is a useful way to look at it. All right, and I'm gonna conclude by uh, looking very quickly at a very different sort of digital media artifact. Um, and uh, specifically, uh, well, let me, let me go through and, and talk about, about these bottom levels and just characterize actually a little bit about um, what work is being done there. So at the level of form and function, we have things like uh, Espinosa's Cybertext and um, uh, Jesper Yule's Half Reel, um, Ian Bogust's uh, unit operations, and Noah Ward of Fruin's expressive processing, where he's interested in how programs function. He looks at code, but he does it in the service of understanding the way that they function. At the level of code, Mark Marino's critical code studies that I mentioned, um, uh, Christiani Paul's uh, code doc exhibition, and um, then Dennis Jair's uh, Somewhere Nearby um, uh, is, a, um, uh, is, a, is a, a colossal cave, which is an examination of the adventure code. Um, and at the platform level, there are things like Jane Douglas's um, uh, investigation of story space in the end of books or books without end. Um, Matt Kirschenbaum's uh, mechanisms deals with the hard disk uh, very uh, uh, in, in great detail. And then um, I did a paper uh, uh, as part of a Gambit project with Alex Mitchell that uh, was on interactive fiction and uh, that we presented at DAC 2009. So these are a few of the ways in which um, people are moving in these new directions. Uh, there is work starting out there, um, but it's, uh, it's not too late to join the effort. And I'm going to run through Self-Portrait as others very quickly. It's a piece of um, uh, electronic literature, digital art, uh, that generates both uh, self-portraits and um, art historical commentary and biography um, about, the, about the artist. And so at the level of reception here, when we're talking about this piece, we can think of uh, Mehmet's description of it. The piece deals with identity in an art historical context, self-identity for any given artist, and identification as a process. We would connect it to what we know about biographies of artists and self-portraiture, um, and we think about it in those sorts of contexts. But at the level of interface, it works a particular way. It has a scroll bar. Uh, it has a button that lets us click to next artist, which in fact does the same thing as just reloading the page. And, uh, so that's, that's what the interface of this piece is doing. At the level of form and function, um, we can see that there are components that are being recombined. In fact, if you just go to self-portrait as, a, as a others online and uh, grab some of these components and drag them off, you can see what pieces the portrait generator is using, what it's made of. So you don't have to do a code investigation. You don't have to actually look at how the program is. Is, uh, is coded, and in fact, it could be written different ways and have those same pieces that it uses to assemble. Um, so the, the number of recombinations, for instance, is something at that level. And then um, at, uh, at the code level, there are specific things we can see. Um, for instance, traces of Mimit's process in creating this program. Some, sometimes we see, um, uh, for instance, uh, variables that are not used in the program, but he must have been thinking about using them at some point um, because he, uh, he wrote them and put them in here. Um, we can also um, uh, see things about um, the way that uh, the, the possible sets of values uh, that are used here more easily. And at the platform level, we look at the fact that this is a web piece that, uh, and in fact, this has been, this has been presented in curated context where it, uh, 
uh, they haven't uh, correctly identified it as being a JavaScript piece. They've called it a Flash piece and so on. So I think people, people are pretty neglectful even when they care about the piece of identifying it as such. But we might consider what its relationship to JavaScript and to, um, uh, and to the web uh, is here. JavaScript, the good parts. Has anyone read that? It's, it's, uh, it sounds like a joke, but it, it is a very short book. Um, um, all right, so uh, with that, I think that we should, uh, oh, got you. <laughs> uh, I think we should have questions. All right. I'll come with the microphone distribution okay. process. Thank you very much. That was fascinating. Um, I want to just go back to one thing, the, the very opening idea, the McLuhan newspaper to Aborigines. And that, that bothered me. Um, so my comment is then going to lead to the question, which is, um, I don't see the analogy as working simply because I don't think code is ever meant to be looked at as the object. I think if you brought an Atari game cartridge, that might, then, uh, but even that, the question is whether if you showed them Pong well, as right. on a screen, would they understand that? So uh, You could say Aborigines aren't uh, meant to read newspapers also, right? But yes, I was but, talking no, no, but, but, the, but the newspaper <laughs> yeah. is meant to be understood as a representation of things, especially you mentioned the photographs. And I know that there's a question yeah. how they would see that. But nobody understands code. So I, and, but are we ever meant to look at a picture of code and yeah. get it as yes. something yes, to I see? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that that's exactly the audience for the demo that we saw is, in fact, people who code in assembly language, generative music and video. In fact, it's shown, that, that's shown, I mean, you can see it on YouTube. You, you also see it at puet.net where uh, demo scene material is, you can download the program. But that is for people who know code, very specifically. In yes, fact, but in not fact, for the general public. And you're treating the Aborigines as the general public, <laughs> right? There's a difference. It, I can understand that when you say the analogy is to manuscript, that there's a, if you are a medieval monk copying Gregorian chant with notated music underneath it, a, a line of music, Nobody but the initiated will have any idea how to understand okay. that. I, I'm not saying that it is imperative upon us, as members of the general public, to understand the way that demos are programmed. But I think it is imperative upon us, as media scholars and critics, to understand computational media that exists in our world. So this is, this is my, my point is not to say that like, you know, um, everybody should, uh, uh, should appreciate that, uh, that demo by understanding you know, all the details about how it's written and each one of those computer graphics techniques, but rather that someone in media studies should, uh, as someone in the study of computational art and media um, should write about this and try to understand what that radical and surprising piece of our culture is doing. So I'm not, I'm not making the, the um, uh, I mean, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of phenomena that, I mean, even, uh, you know, uh, fan cultures aren't something that, that, even though the public participates in them, they're not something that everyone popularly understands. 
like the dynamics of them and how they work. I mean, but they're, they're something that are relevant to the way media are received in our society. And I absolutely agree. Yeah. To, I think, follow on that point and maybe sort of poke back a little bit. Well, I should mention yeah. it's being recorded, so if you can introduce yourself. Ah, I'm, I'm Tom Levinson in the writing program. And um, uh, sort of push back a little bit on that. I mean, I have some skepticism about this program as well. I mean, you, you remember a conversation we had when, when I sort of uh, kind of wondered about uh, critical code studies um, mm -hmm. as uh, in a context where you know, there's journalism you can do there. The, 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 the authors of code that are being subjected to criticism or, or assertions about intention uh, are alive, and you don't need to do a sort of abstract critical study when you can go uh, talk to people. That's a mistake. Well, let me mention something there. The hmm. issue there is that, right, is that, like, material objects and pieces of media hmm. remember different things than people do. So if I look at an Atari cartridge, Mm -hmm. I learned something that I don't learn from talking to Howard Scott Warshaw. And if I talk to Howard Scott Warshaw, I learn something that I don't learn right. from and looking at the cartridge. I, 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 so. I got that, and, and my argument was that only half the program was being advanced. You need to do both halves. But on this one, I mean, the thing that seems to me that's important about what, what, what you're arguing here is not that uh, even as a member of a general public or as, as a, an audience looking at the finished work, um, I mean, your, your, your kind of flip remark that it's, you know, it's avatar fail and there's this, you know, terrible industrial scale um, uh, operation that produces this grand spectacle, whereas, you know, look at the elegance and economy of this. I mean, they do different things and I enjoy the, the, the technology of avatar, but, but your point is exactly right. It's meaningful to the audience, even if they don't know the coding uh, techniques specifically, yeah. that this object that you're looking at is the result of an extremely, you know, uh, you know, as constrained as a, as a, as, you know, a highly restricted poetic form, you know, express some, some meaning in 17 syllables kind of thing. Yep. That is, that's an element in understanding the art and you have to be willing to expose that to the audience at least that far, even if, you know, you're never going to teach me how to program in an assembly language, yeah. which you aren't. So, I mean, I, another, yeah, another way of saying it would be like the second time you saw that video, did you think about it and feel about it differently than the first time that you saw it. I, I suspect so, and I suspect that's an indication that, therefore, it is important to know something about the level of code and platform in order to study this. If even uh, a slight mention of what that is changes the way we receive it as viewers, how much more could be changed if we actually investigate those very seriously? Uh, Nick, that was really interesting, and I wanted to ask you, um, probably not surprisingly, about the culture part. Mm -hmm. um, and you made some very provocative side remarks from time to time about, you know, th things that clearly were imported into the design of the Atari system, you know, the, the wood grain is the best mm -hmm. example, right? 
thinking of the demo, I'm thinking of a deeper sort of cultural envelope or bigger cultural envelope because I, I was struck watching it and maybe even more powerfully the second time by the fact that, you know, well, waste mountain landscapes are, are our figure for sublimity, right? Where do we get that from, right? Where do these people get it from? I mean, would this be enriched if the project included like reading Shelley's Mont Blanc in relation to it? I mean, because I think yeah. ultimately that is where these notions come from. Um, and to what extent do the people designing these systems know that or, or want to reflect on yeah. it? Um, and then I guess also the most, for me, the most striking thing of watching it, and I noticed certainly much more the second time was that very cheesy effect of like the the, the, the lights yeah, right? yeah. that are in time with the music right. and it's like you know the it, it's not mount it doesn't go with mountain scenery right it goes with um, club uh, scene Hollywood <laughs> right it goes with, you know and you know yeah. what is that you know that 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 what is what I'm trying to think that that searchlight thing that goes across the sky yeah, yeah. and I so I don't know I mean there's an aesthetic um, combination of elements here that I would like to have I, I would really like it if it were m reflected on sort of more in a more sustained way yeah so. well I think there's I think f one thing I would say is that I think there's uh, been tremendous development uh, aesthetically within the demo scene without um, uh, you know landing parties of uh, aesthetic colonists coming in and, and handing Shelley to them or you know um, or anything I mean some of the people know Shelley's and some of the people uh, don't accept symptomatically from the because culture reflects those those sorts of ideas and and they work in different ways. I mean, I certainly could have shown this. You know, if you thought that was cheesy, some of the demos, particularly earlier ones, particularly the people are laughing who I, I've shown them to, um, uh, are are very juvenile, uh, cheesy in different ways. Um, but um, but it's I, I think that I think that this is going somewhere. I think it's doing something, even though, I mean, it, it, you, a lot of people said the heyday of this was back in the time of the Amiga. You know, it's, this is, uh, fewer people participating in this scene now than, uh, than was the case, uh, like significantly fewer than was the case 10 years ago. But, but you know, that's where they made it to. Um, and, and without any connection to, um, uh, without people willing to think about it in relationship to Shelley or in relationship to what happens in a museum or, uh, anything else our next question from Joel Burgess uh, well I actually noticed the sublime element too and uh, my experience of it was actually relatively the same both times regardless of the computational thing um, so I, I think that what I wonder if we're dealing with two different levels and that's what I found useful about you know the reception and operation down to the code um, is that one is about sort of forms of aesthetic production at which you have a certain group of readers right um, and then there's forms of aesthetic reception through which they're rendering what's unfamiliar or familiar at some level. So even, I mean, the code here, they don't have to turn it into something that we know how to look at, right? They could turn it into something that we don't know how to look at, right. um, in which case they would be mimicking the code more closely. Um, to go back to the analogy, though, um, I think that that's what's at stake in the analogy, too, because I do think that the code, I do think we're like aborigines in relationship to the code, depending upon who we are. Right, um, and and I think the Arab Aborigine might say, "Well, I won't ever know that language either." 
right? But in both cases, we could learn the language that's being iterated, whether or not we constitute part of a general public or not. Um, yeah. So it just seems like the, the situation is getting complexified here in a way, I don't know if I'm making sense. Well, so one of the thing, one thing that, that I, I hope is relevant here is to mention, right, that two of the main examples I talked about um, are esoteric in certain ways. Uh, actually, I'd say there's a spectrum that really the, the, the demo scene stuff is, uh, is for the community, its intended audience is this community of people, you know, working in that practice. Um, the, that's more or less the case with electronic literature and with the case of Talon Mehmet's piece, but, you know, you can come to it and see it. It's, it's, it's not meant to only uh, sort of resonate with or connect with, you know, uh, electronic literature authors. Now, on the other hand, the Atari VCS programs, you know, uh, try to encapsulate that and present something uh, to a very, very broad uh, public. So, so I think that it's interesting to consider the cases where, the, you know, those who are intended to receive it, those who are thinking about it, know about code themselves. But, uh, and I think, as, I think it's always significant as critics and scholars to do that. But um, I, I think the approach is general to all sorts of whether popular or esoteric types of work. Mm -hmm. So Nick, I wonder if it's useful to ex try to extend your taxonomy to domains that we that are more familiar. Let's say um, the book, yes. the reception. Except we ripped it off from domains like that. Is the thing. <laughs> I mean, really, like the material history of text is you know is really an inspiration. The idea that you can do work in bibliography, that you can study the book as an object, um, that you can learn things about the way it was printed from looking at something that's over there sitting in the library, you know, is is is. I, I would love if we inform if we inform the study of the book. But uh, when people ask me that at like, uh, the Society for Textual Studies, you know, this is, this is the, the amused answer that I gave. <laughs> right, so I mean, that's w maybe one way to parse it out. I, so maybe, can you just run through the levels in that case? Yeah, sure. In fact, I can, uh, I can restore them to the screen here. Um, uh, yeah, reception and operation. Okay, so that's a domain a lot of us are familiar with. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that up, I guess. And f interface yeah. is like turning the page. <coughs> it's the fact that it's in a it's in a linear. It's the sort of imposed yeah, linearity. Form and function might be stanza and and rhyme. Well, Could it's be. so obviously that's the way that that's the way form is used in in, uh, in one, of one of one of the major ways form is used in literary work. But I guess the the issue is that mm, thinking about uh, the system as having an interface that's separate. I mean, the book is a machine, but it's not a computational machine, right. um, or at, at least it's not one. Uh, I unless you are participating in that, and it, and it's a very strange book, um, uh, Raymond Quinault's, you know. But you're saying the the, you're saying this taxonomy does not work. Um, I that. don't think that there's. So I think once we get to these bottom levels of form, function, code, and platform, that I mean, there's a correspondence. So I'd say that you know, for instance, um, uh, that uh, the printing press has something to do with uh, with platform. Okay. Well, maybe one. If we, what's code? Would code be language? Well, right. And link, like the, li the level of linguistic analysis where we're looking at morphemes and phonemes. See, I mean, this is the thing. The, the, I, think the, the, I think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting to pursue these ideas. But the reason that, that, that it's hard to match these things up directly is because, you know, we have, we have sort of, we, we know what layered models are that apply to the book like this. But because the book is a different type of machine. Right. Um, uh, and it's not a computational machine. It doesn't have it doesn't have code. Um, I mean, in some ways, maybe Matt Kirschenbaum and people working on born digital literary text would tell you that it does have code. 
because uh, the code would be, you know, the LaTeX file or, you know, uh, all of the uh, all the things that went into the uh, the production and publication of that book that are digital. Right. So I guess right? my question is, when you, so, uh, I, you know, we learn we we, I think a lot of people, at least I understand by analogy, and so, enlisting you, I'm trying to extend this to a domain where I'm more comfortable, right, which, right. in general, tends to be the non-computational. Yeah. Um, and it's probably really useful to signal those points where this only works within the computational domain, and this is where it steps outside right. the kind of... Well, so what, yeah, along those lines, clearly it's reception operation is something that applies universally. Um, that, that we can take a, uh, take a look at in any media form. We can, we can talk about a film. Uh, we can talk about uh, a book. Um, and, uh, but once we get below that, the reason that... Um, um, we want to make distinctions about interface form function code and platform has to do with the way these things well conventionally are abstracted in producing systems but also um, why those are useful abstractions in creating them um, so I mean I, you know HTML is not um, HTML without JavaScript or, 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 or other um, scripting languages is not a, um, uh, a programming language it's a markup language um, but nevertheless, we could talk about a web page as having code. Um, it's just not uh, a computer program that's encoded. It's a markup scheme. It's a structured document right, that we see. So that's, that's one connection there. Um, but um, I, think there's, I think there's some, yeah, there's some ways. I think this is actually, I think, related to the reason. I think you know, because reception operation is something that we are deft at dealing with across different media, a lot of work stays at that level. Um, and the things that are harder to apply, and it's not exactly obvious where, where they connect, you know, then we need to think uh, uh, sort of seriously about um, how it is that we work at that level. Marty, I see you chomping, but I got to cut me a couple people first. Thanks. C4. Okay. This is the okay. Are you uh, doing or not? Patsy, well, okay. I think Jim was first, and then we'll go to uh, Patsy. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Jim. Parity Writing Program. Um, so, Nick, uh, I'm I'm very curious about. Uh, I like the complexity of the breakdown here and so forth, but. Uh, I'm having some difficulty understanding the authoring process here in the traditional model, or at least in a model I'm more familiar with of authoring. Although I think, you know, when you mention the markup process and the fact that people use markup to create artistic objects, and so there's a kind of palette here or something that uh, someone is using. So could you? maybe explore authorship as a phenomenon in this whole approach that you're taking to platform studies and so forth. So you're talking about the actual ways that practitioners create media objects, computational media right, objects. Right, exactly. And, and in, in some sense, what their self-concept is, what they think right. they're doing. Because a lot of this seems to be, That's at some level, highly opportunistic, and yet uh, other aspects seem highly produced uh, with a aesthetic goal in mind. So I'm trying to sort through this and get a better understanding of that. Well, uh, so one of the things I'd say generally is it's very, very rare that um, the same person or group of people is creating a platform and then writing code on it. It does happen. Um, like uh, uh, people write their own interactive fiction system and then they write games in that system. Um, uh, Larry Wall develops Perl and he writes Perl programs, etc. But um, most of the time that platform is made 
separately, um, hardware or software platform that it may be, and uh, someone selects a platform and writes code. Now, they can start by thinking about any of these levels, even, even uh, for, I, I mean, you know, my collaborator Ian Bogus makes Atari 2600 games, and uh, I'm sure he starts by thinking about the nature of the Atari 2600 as a platform, although it's not to say that he isn't thinking about other concerns as well, or that starting from there he doesn't go into interesting places. Um, the people who are writing uh, demos in the demo scene are working at this code and platform level initially. They're thinking about this. It's, it's not, you know, I can, one of the things about generating a beautiful mountain terrain is that you can do it in a very small amount of code. Um, they, people create urban cityscapes, that, but they do things that, um, that are facilitated by um, the possibilities of code and platform. Now, on the other, on the other hand, you can, you can decide that, um, I mean, for instance, uh, uh, I don't think that Talon Mehmet was mainly thinking about these levels. Like he knew how to code in JavaScript, and he, he was familiar with creating things on the web, but I think he was interested, certainly, uh, at a higher level of you know, reception and operation. Um, form and function, thinking about what it meant to have something that was a combinatorial uh, system for generating images and generating texts. Um, so that's, I, I, think from, I think from the standpoint of, of authorship, we sort of say like, you know, where the impulse comes from to create something, uh, and that may have a lot to do with, with uh, why we receive things also, you know, more easily in some cases than others, and, and why we have these particular, um, uh, and why maybe knowing about the means of their production um, and the way that practitioners put them together um, might influence us. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a great idea to look from that perspective particularly. That's it, you're done? Okay. So I guess I have a very broadly open-ended question that relates to some of the questions we've we've asked of other people who've been speaking in colloquium and of the job talks is sort of how does this relate pedagogically to new media studies? Mm. Um, so to step backward, um, compared to most of the people who've been asking questions, I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's a familiarity with your past work. I'm having trouble understanding how we could not see this as integral, every step as integral to studying media and not just new media. Um, and I, and then I wonder, Patsy, you're nodding your head. That's a good thing. Um, <laughs> um, but I sort of wonder also if that has to do with everyone back here in this row who have been your students who have seen um, sort of viscerally, even if they weren't knowledgeable about code previously or all these different levels, um, how, how these levels are integral to every kind of new media function. So... Um, I sort of wonder if steps that you've taken with our class relate to further pedagogical ideas you have or, well, yeah, something like that. I, I have to, so one of the things I find in talking with people is uh, generally um, uh, I, I will find, you know, um, the, the, the type of reaction to, to this, this, this type of uh, talk from, from uh, imminent uh, esteemed academics uh, would be uh, things like, oh, but, you know, how are you going to you know, find people to uh, uh, actually know about the technical details and also no and and no uh, actually <laughs> it turns out that that I mean this has to do with the fact that these studies you know 
are just beginning now. They haven't been done, but there's a there's a huge number of people who are ready to do this stuff, um, and uh, and they're doing it. I mean, uh, at uh, there wasn't uh, anyone uh, currently from CMS at Digital Arts and Culture, but Brett Camper, uh, who um, uh, did his uh, his uh, thesis on the um, uh, Game Boy Advance, and uh, Jim Bazzocchi, who did uh, Ceremony of Innocence thesis, right? We're both there. And, and, with, and, and Jim was there with students who, uh, Brett, Brett came even though he isn't an academic, he just came to the conference anyway. And, uh, and Jim Bazzocchi came with students who were doing you know, this type of work. Um, so I think that you know, part of it, yeah, is, is, including, is, is, is um, including the technical level um, and uh, the underpinnings of, of computing, um, not just in the, in the intro to computer science sort of way, although you, you can learn some fine things by just you know, going and taking computer science courses, but, um, but specifically by uh, uh, looking at those in situations of uh, creative practice and cultural production and uh, communication. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think that I think work has to be done there, but I, I think maybe less work than we think has to be done there because I, the, the rising generation of scholars is um, is already very good at this. You go after Patsy. You can have your turn. Then we'll come back. So my name is Patsy Bodwan from the libraries. Um, I sort of wanted to address the analogy question that William put out that yeah. he won't be here to hear answer to, but. It does feel to me like there is something about platform, for instance, that is useful when you're thinking about books and, say, games. Yeah. Um, they're made of paper. They're different shapes. The ink is different. We go back. We go back to uh, to manuscripts to look at the details of how a novel might have been written, even though the average person reads a novel that is published. Um, so I do think there are ways of thinking about it. There are ways of thinking about ink, handwriting, script, all those things are all part of the coding and the message and the, the various levels. Um, and that's basically what I want to say. I have no problem with that. My problem is with try, trying to make analogies work too well, too hard. And, excuse me, just, just a minute. Um, this is, I think this is very important, and that's why I'm, I'm harping on this. I don't think McLuhan was talking about this. He was talking about something else altogether. And one of the problems here is we need to be very clear. Every medium that we study, we want to know, of course, about how it's done. When we study films, we, we benefit immeasurably from knowing everything down to how celluloid works, how cameras work, how studios function. There's a taxonomy and a hierarchy of production processes, objects creations, and object receptions in every medium. Mm -hmm. But why do we need to get it so detailed that we, I don't think the code line here can be easily correlated to any other medium. And we have to recognize that there's a reason why it's called new media, and that we don't need to show how everything relates to the past. But so I just don't want you to push too hard in that direction. I'm sorry to those of you who think this is a generational issue. It's not. It's a conceptual issue that has to do with language and how we think about things. And I really don't believe that it's because I'm older that I see it this way. I believe it's because I think we need to use language as precisely as possible. And code means something different when you're talking about platforms and computers 
from what it used to mean in other contexts. Words change, and when they do, the meanings need to be reassessed. From one. Well, I, I am because I think we're getting fuzzy. That's why. I'm just trying to make sure we're clear as to what we're talking about. Well, I mean, there are, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, I hope I'm repeating myself in saying that there are correspondences to other ways that we study media, and there are distinctions. And we want to recognize both of those because we want to draw on methods or analogous versions of methods that work in understanding other media. And we want to develop the new methods and new ways of understanding that are specific to computing. So um, I agree with both of you. <laughs> yes. This is um, actually kind of a follow-up to, I think, what, what Marty just said. Uh, this is <coughs> Sheila asking a question. Um, throughout, throughout the um, presentation, you, you know, mentioned that this isn't just about video games. Mm. Um, so I was wondering um, if you could just talk briefly about how um, you would sort of apply this framework to other yeah. um, digital media. Like I'm thinking, I study TV, and we use the word platform a whole lot yes, to talk yes. about distribution platforms. Right. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels. Um, so, and I think this also, you know, could get to the point that of contention that we're having. So, yeah. Well, okay. So, I, I so I, there were there were mm, uh, of the computational artifacts I talked about. It was first, uh, first uh, something from the demo scene, which which wasn't a video game. Um, uh, then uh, I talked about Hunt the Wumpus and Pong, which uh, I would say are both video games, except the uh, Hunt the Wumpus used a printer as an output device, so a lot of people would not say that's a, that's a video game. Um, and then the, the Atari VCS with some focus on Yars Revenge, and then ending with um, Talamemet's Self-Portrait as Others, which, which, which also isn't a video game. So, I, I mean, my, my own focus, uh, in working on this, and, and what you know, Ian and I are trying to do with the series, is specifically to look at computational media, where computing power is used as um, the media object executes to uh, create some of its effects. Now, platform is used in uh, in a lot of other senses, and um, and and it's legitimate in those senses. Uh, computing didn't have the word first, something like that, um, but. Um, but we, we are, you know, um, because we don't, uh, uh, so for instance, like from the standpoint of the book series, if someone came to us with something that was a, a book on uh, sort of mass media uh, communication that wasn't about computation, that might be a good book. And we, we might say, well, uh, you know, it looks good to do this, but, but we're not the right series editors to work with you because, you know, we're working on computational media specifically. So um, that's not to say that that's, not you know platform studies in a broad sense, or it's not appropriate to look at that level. But it's just what our focus is as people who are looking at the way computing intersects with creativity and culture, specifically. But I mean, sorry, just to follow up. Do you think that it is increasingly um, that computing is influencing these other medium as uh, yes. as things you know as things are becoming digital that you know yeah. these other media may be moving toward a point of becoming computational. I mean, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean th that's <laughs> happening with uh, exactly. It's happening with books, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and e-book readers. But um, there's also, right, there's a question of, of whether, you know, do books want to be computational as, uh, like, information wants to be free? Um, because, uh, you know, the, whether they're to be packaged in a way that, you know, something that can go on the e-book reader is something that is what we already understand and what we already want to do, or whether it's something else, 
is uh, uh, is an open question. You know, how is how, how are we gonna how are we gonna move forward with uh, with ebooks? Okay. Hands are really going up now. I'm I'm gonna give first before seconds though. I think we'll <laughs> we'll go with that. Got Mary. I'll dive in, then Ed, and then we'll come back down to. Uh, Mary Fuller from Literature. Um, so it's, it's charming to see material objects, especially these sort of really retro games. And I'm curious, I mean, one of the things that seems particular about the project that you're engaged in is that there is a tremendous choice of possible platforms. And so I'm curious about how you chose the particular ones that you're working on, how you might choose others, like what kinds of things interest you. These, there is a sort of faint retro flavor <coughs> here. Um, which might be <coughs> really accidental, but that's my question. Well, it's also a lot easier when you're talking about things that are created in an industrial context, you know, uh, and information's not published about them. Um, when you're talking about something that's, you know, 30 years old as opposed to um, uh, something that's still in production and still being sold, you can learn s different sorts of things. Not to say that we shouldn't investigate current platforms, but there's a reason we started with, you know, the one that we did. Um, and are, are looking at others that are open uh, to us in that way uh, because of history um, um, or because of intention. Um, I'm working with uh, Mia Consalvo on um, uh, study of the Dreamcast um, as a platform, which you know, probably article-sized. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we're looking at that as uh, that just uh, intrigued both of us as a platform as Sega's last uh, video game system. Um, and uh, it intrigued us that there's uh, really, really uh, radical, unusual games. You look at the, the, the similar generation systems of uh, Xbox and PlayStation 2, and 9 out of 10 of the top 10 games are sequels for both of those games. And the Dreamcast has just completely outrageous, uh, um, uh, radical things going on, to, uh, going on with it. It's uh, Res, Space Channel 5, Seaman um, uh, uh, um, uh, is a virtual pet in which you... Uh, uh, grow and talk to, uh, uh, with a microphone attachment, this uh, creature who speaks in the voice of Leonard Nimoy. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, just really a lot of, uh, a lot of unusual things. So, so that interest comes from, you know, different things. I mean, there's nothing, uh, on the other hand, there's nothing, like, really remarkable about the, the Dreamcast technically. It doesn't have any major flaws. It doesn't have, you know, huge, tremendous advantages, but for some reason, uh, these games came about on it. So in that case, our interest was from, from games down, whereas the, the VCS was, is iconic. And so, um, you know, that sort of in, independent of any particular game was really interesting. Yeah, I see you guys, but I'm, we got to get to Ed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in for a steal a slot here, too. Uh, so this is Ian, the different Ian, Ian Condry, uh, not the Ian of, this, of, of fame here. Uh, I'm interested in this question of, of sort of culture in, culture out, uh, and how that works and how you see that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I too, I'm trying to think uh, the analog here and how might this work. And I, I'm thinking of animation and, and it's sort of an, Japanese animation as a platform where, for example, they were struggling to draw fewer and fewer frames and figure out how to do that because it's more cost effective, they would have these scenes where it would just be Astro Boy posing, right? And so they did this and they'd zoom in and it had an intensity uh, and it saved them a lot of money because <coughs> they didn't have time to, to draw all the frames. But then later, so that's sort of the platform of, of having to draw these things and then, and, uh, and the style comes out of it. And, but then it was interpreted as, oh, this is like Kabuki. 
you know, because in Kabuki, it's when they hold the pose, that's the most dramatic moment. And it, it's completely apocryphal. Uh, and yet it becomes part of the circula circulation of ideas about the Japanese-ness of it, when in fact it's just a, a style taken from elsewhere. So I, I don't know if that's an analog or not, but, but at least I'm curious to hear, you know, uh, your take on how this culture and platform, because we all say we're not technological determinists, but then we also all, also want to say, but technology matters, yeah. which is kind of having it both ways. So I'm, I'm curious how you see that, uh, and maybe in one, one of these examples. Well, th there are a lot of different styles. I mean, with a VCS, people will, <coughs> you know, um, do things that, that really, uh, Steve Cartwright was someone who did, you know, barnstorming and, uh, and frostbite. Uh, he, he was somebody who sort of would, would you know, reskin a, a game or take a very simple idea, you know, modify it a little bit, um, and, and, you know, uh, to beautiful results. I mean, he was, he was a good um, uh, programmer of, uh, of VCS cards. And then someone like, um, uh, David Crane, on the other hand, who did Pitfall, you know, he was interested in just, you know, making something that, that everybody, that, that no one would even recognize as being possible, you know, on the VCS. It really going against the platform and, uh, and, and making it, you know, tricking it out, making it do, um, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, radical things. Um, so, <clears throat> so a variety of, so it's certainly not the case that platform, you know, constrains people to a single style, but the styles that do exist, such as the two I just mentioned, you know, um, relate to the platform because you're going to use the facilities of the platform, those two player sprites, you know, ball sprite, two missile sprites, um, and the background, uh, sort of as they're intended, as they're given, um, uh, if you're uh, someone like Steve Cartwright, and you're going to do something uh, entirely different, um, and you, you're going to try to subvert what the platform does and sort of work against that and, and have something that looks uh, totally different if you're, if you're David Crane. But in both ways, the platform factors in to the style. Cool. All right, we'll have the last few questions. So is anybody else wanting to go who hasn't yet? I got you guys over here and we got yeah. Wayne. Hey Nick, Ed Barrett. I almost forgot what my question was. Uh, I will try to avoid the generational uh, <laughs> polarity as well as the Aborigine Shelley yes. polarity, which yeah. Rather stark. Uh, this is a somewhat domestic question. Um, you know, when I was getting my degrees and whatever I got my degrees in, I had to take uh, language requirements. And there was a classical language or two and yeah. some foreign languages or one or two. Uh, so this is a somewhat domestic question. We mm -hmm. have humanities programs here at MIT offering um, degrees and studies in things computational and humanistic. So, um, given what you've presented, um, as a practical question, what kind of language requirements would you uh, would you suggest? Um, uh, Brazilian Portuguese would be good. Yeah. Um, actually, um, I mean, I don't. Um, you know, one. So, a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, programming languages that we use are based on English, um, and there is this question of does it make sense in certain contexts as a sort of bureaucratic maneuver to allow people to learn a programming language, you know, as part of a, um, a language requirement. Um, I think absolutely not. <laughs> I think it's, uh, my, my perspective on that is that programming languages, uh, they relate to languages, human languages, natural languages in some interesting ways because they are read by people. They do have meaning to people in addition to having a semantics, a machine semantics that causes them to execute and produce output in a certain way. 
but they're not vehicles for general expression. Um, and you're not going to read other literatures, other academic articles um, by learning them. And the important thing about learning about computing is not learning specific computer languages either. So it's a it's a lose lose situation from from everyone's standpoint. From this, you know, you, you don't say like, oh, when you get out, you're, you're going to learn Lisp. Like that's that's going to be the big the big payoff. I mean, um, some people will want you to at certain at certain places, but um, in fact, you want to know about um, uh, it's 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 a lot a lot more important for some people to. Um, that you know about uh, uh, type safety or uh, proving programs or um, uh, you know ab about computer architecture. Um, yeah, you need to know. You need to be able to write some programs. But um, if you're if you understand programming, then uh, whether you do it in um, in uh, uh, Python or Perl or uh, JavaScript, um, I mean, you can damage yourself more <laughs> with some of those languages than others. But um, <clears throat> but you would have the a capability to use to use them, um, and uh, similarly, if you know if you know functional programming, you would have a capability to use functional programming languages. So, um, so I think uh, um, I I'm very much against conflating um, uh, programming language with uh, natural language for um, uh, for those sorts of uh, of requirements. I think people should know. You know, there, there's a. I mean, here's an example of something I think I think people should know. Um, who are studying, you know, video game systems, they should know what 16-bit means. I mean, not beyond the fact, but what does it mean that you have a 16-bit system? Like, you know, um, uh, if, if, if someone can't articulate that by knowing what address space is and being aware of what the constraint of, uh, you know, 16-bit addressing does, uh, that's a problem. So, but that has nothing to do with, uh, with learning a language, right? That has, that has to do with... Uh, um, uh, how, how you would want to be aware of um, uh, the way that computing works more generally. Uh, yeah. Wayne Marshall, Mellon Fellow. Um, I, I appreciate that the, one of the major distinctions you're, you're trying to draw here, especially as we try to work it out and throw different analogs at you, is the computational yeah. aspect of it. Um, uh, and yet, I, I, I mean, I think you can make the argument that increasingly uh, both computer platforms and computational codes are underlying uh, a real a wide array of, of cultural practice today, even if people are more likely to be working at the level of form and function and, and so forth than at the computational level. Um, and I'm definitely interested in platforms these days without getting too loosey-goosey about it uh, because of oh, the yeah. degree to which they underlie all that cultural practice. And I guess so then my question is to you, um, especially as, as editor, editor of this series now, um, what are some other kinds of platforms or kinds of cultural domains that you're envisioning beyond, you're saying it's not just video games, but so far a lot of the conversation has been ab about those. Can you just give a sense of the, the broader picture? Yeah, so we are uh, going to have a book on, uh, on the Wii, which is of course a video game system, um, but one very interesting uh, from interface standpoint, still you know current, on the market, and uh, it's uh, being written by uh, a, a pair of collaborators, one a uh, computer scientist and one a humanist. Um, so uh, we also, it looks like, are going to have a book on the Dynabook, uh, Alan Kay's uh, platform that never actually existed, but was very influential as a concept. And um, you know, in addition to having an educational aspect, um, 
uh, really uh, made the case for uh, notebook computing. So these 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 books are are, are more or less coming, are coming at some pace. Mm -hmm. um, you know how academic publishing is. Um, <clears throat> but beyond that, I think you know I would be delighted to um, to see a book on basic as a platform. Now it's sort of funny to a lot of people to think of it as a platform because it's not even really a language. Uh, it's actually a family of languages that aren't compatible with one another, right? Um, but it was treated as a platform because you got books on how to program things in BASIC. And then when you typed them into your computer, you had to make some changes and things like this. But, um, but throughout the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, BASIC was, in fact, a sort of uh, uh, lingua franca to refer to uh, that problematic comparison between natural language and computer language um, for computing. It was first, you know, Alto Basic was the first product of Microsoft, um, their Alto Basic uh, compiler, and uh, and you know Steve Wozniak wrote the Integer Basic, and you know for um, for Apple, and um, and we see things in there like Hammurabi, which is you know an educational game that was a, sort of the first simulator of um, governance of a society, um, and Hunt the Wampus, and uh, uh, you know, huge uh, Star Trek, and uh, and then things like Eliza were you know ported to Basic so that people could type them in and play with them. So all of all of there was there was a lot of really interesting stuff that, I mean, some of those things were games, but there was a wide variety of, of creative cultural production, um, uh, and <coughs> excuse me, um, and then <coughs> uh, beyond that, you know, we're interested in certainly like. Um, other programming languages, other famous uh, um, uh, single historical computers, even if they're if they're of uh, a particular um, uh, consequence, um, and um, and works. I mean, would something like uh, mm -hmm. like the you know the the sort of uh, famed and um, and treasured Roland beatboxes, like the uh, yeah. the eight hundred eight or the three hundred three? Is that do you, or, oh, there's, or there's any some of these boxes? I mean, uh, yeah. The, the general, so the general idea that, um, that we have is, so there's sort of this test which, you know, Mark Andreessen um, uh, has for, you know, if something's a platform, which is, can you write a program on it? Okay, and that's, that's sort of the way to think about. Now, there are things that you can, that you can program in more restricted senses and in more general senses. So, but the best case of a platform is something that, you know, very generally, you have the capability to, uh, to program on, right. which makes, you know, I mean, also, along these lines, that makes, right, Facebook is a platform. You can write programs on Facebook, right? But the question about it then is, well, is that why it's interesting? Is Facebook actually interesting as a platform in the computational sense, or is it interesting as a communication social networking system, and would you really want to, you know, do it? I mean, so in that case, maybe you, you don't want to force it that way. You want to think about that in relation to everything else. Uh, just one quick uh uh, Jim Parody writing program. Um, it seems to me that, you know, language as we're using it here and as you're exploring it and so forth uh, has moved into something that's really profoundly different from, you know, historically. And that is uh, the whole concept of simulation. The fact that the structure of the language actually performs, carries out something actually. So, uh, you know, I see that in almost all the different things you're talking about here, uh, a different level of uh, activity that's taking place uh, linguistically. Um, I guess my question is, uh, 
as you talk about these different approaches and these uh, platform studies, code studies, and so forth, uh, in your own work with Bogost, mm -hmm. and your book, I think, is really a great uh, introduction to, you know, the sort of the material base of computing. And one of the questions I have is, uh, do you have any kind of a concept of methodology that you see as running through these types of studies sure. or... Uh, are they just kind of coming from, as, as most media studies do, from all sorts of different approaches? So what can you say about your methodology and about the uh, core methodologies that you see as, a, as applying to these fields here? So yeah, the, the short answer is, um, uh, yeah, coming from all over the place is, uh, is, the, is the... I was afraid you were going to say that, but it's cool. okay. Well, or rather, I, I would say we want to be open about the way people approach these, because platform studies, uh, so we, we do have this emphasis on this focus on computational platforms, um, which is one thing, but not video game systems exclusively, but computational platforms. But your approach is really historical in your book. I yes. Mean, uh, you go back to the simple, to the, yeah. what Mary was calling the retro, in order right. to get back to some fundamental principle that then you bring forward. Yeah, so um, here's, here's a, uh, well, yeah, so there, there's a question of, of what, what we're doing, but the thing I want to make clear is that platform studies um, isn't uh, a methodology. It is a, it is a focus on the platform level, but the ways in which people actually study that platform um, could vary a great deal. So, for instance, um, I don't like um, uh, interviewing people. That's not part of the way. I mean, I, I do. I, we did interview some people for the uh, for racing the beam, but that's not the main way in which I work. I don't. I don't. Uh, um, I can barely pronounce the word anthropologist. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't go off and, and do do interviews. But we would love because I. But I like to look at. I like to look at material objects and see what the story is there. Now, we want people who are anthropologists and who are ethnographers and who do interviews to pursue these studies as well. So we, we don't want to say, oh, you do it you know, our way. Um, we want to uh, try to you know, uh, show what's really fascinating and compelling and what does connect to culture about these. But um, it's perfectly legitimate to do uh, the same type of study that we do, but um, to focus on the things you learn from talking to people as opposed to um, investigating uh, material objects in the mode of bibliography or textual studies or something like that. And so and those, that, that was, those are some of the inspirations. And, but also, you know, finding, uh, you know, understanding things about um, computer architecture and programming and uh, learning about those constraints and, and, uh, and, you know, investigating how they factored into the way that games were, were put together and the way they, they, they related. Tom Levinson writing again, uh, and I'm sort of going back to this, the, the 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 colloquy about the you know generational divide and and Marty's uh, plea for a, a precision in our use of language, and one of the things I like about this presentation. I, I should note that when I when I was referring to those those eminent professors at other institutions who talked to me, I should have said at that time you know. Uh, express dismay at the idea that people would have to know about these two different things. So anyway. But, uh, it's, it's all right. You can call anyone <laughs> you want an alter cahar. It's okay. Um, but what, what's, uh, what has come out of this talk, really, for me, is, is um, sort of the usefulness of this model, not, you know, for applying a test of change to often very traditional media studies, 
even if you know the result might not produce a book that you would want for your series, it's very useful for all kinds of things. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, quickly a couple of examples. I mean, film studies where you simply examine the finished object um, fail to capture some of the very important changes that have you know taken place throughout the history of film, but are are happening right now. There is, you know, as you move from um, linear recording media that require a one-to-one -one transfer to some editing system, whether it's a, a flatbed film editing table or an online or a software-based editing system that you still have to take a videotape and transfer to. As you move from that to um, a chip-based system, the actual practice switches from something that's metaphorically like sculpture to something that is much more like sketching. Mm -hmm. And that has an impact on both the way things are made and, and quite possibly on people's outcome. And similarly, if you read, you know, you pick up any issue of, of American cinematographer, uh, you know, you'll see people who have traditionally been, don't bother me with the technology, I'm worried about light, speaking in great detail about the specific constraints and opportunities of the codex of different camera systems. The red system is fine for this, but you don't use it for that. You need a Sony 950 or what have you. And these are people who are trying to create a finished aesthetic object with very specific intention, and they are diving deep into actually specifically really computer code to understand how the tools they work with can, can, can be used. And, you know, this kind of model is very, very helpful for really tracking moments when you're getting great media change and its impact on broad cultural practice. I, I think there is some generality there. One of the uh, reviewers of our book uh, referred to this as uh, Monfort and Bogus Mar Marxist layer cake. Um, <laughs> so I guess that speaks to its uh, broad applicability. Uh, before our last question, I just want to remind everybody there will be reception after this uh, <laughs> nearby. Uh, we'll lead people to the reception. Uh, but this is our last question from Dan. So Dan Pereira with C3. And it, it kind of got answered um, yeah. because I wanted to bring up Facebook as a platform. And um, so just an observation that segues to a question. Um, in terms of the skill set that CMS undergraduate and graduate students get exposed to, even just some time spent thinking in a platform way as they go into the market and then have to create social activist platforms or marketing campaigns that plug into Facebook. Or I mean, the what we're seeing at C3 right now in our research is that there's a, a platform discourse in the marketplace right mm -hmm. now. Everything's a platform is the feedback we're getting. And so how to, cr how to create value in that marketplace is, is a challenge. So CMS students going into whatever they end up doing with a platform discourse under their belt is a remarkable differentiator of value for their career, in my opinion. Having seen how other departments at other universities frame their critical studies discourse, this is a very big deal, in my opinion. Um, but to, to, ask, to uh, ask a question, mm -hmm. um, so what's the hope then from the book series is that, is that uh, this becomes a, a place where people know to find the platform studies ideas and like what's, what's yeah I mean what's the plan we're trying to encourage people to do book length platform studies focusing on specific platforms or closely related families of platforms so um, I mean there are different sorts of book series right so sometimes there's a book series and it's sort of like uh, it turns out to be a sort of brand that you can put on books that are coming in anyway right and platform studies is not like that because no one's writing these books to start off with. We're trying to advertise, you know, that uh, there's a space now for people to do this type of study where um, really if you did it, um, 
it, it's not clear that it would fit into other sorts of publication, other presses. So, um, so that's that's the goal. I mean, it, it's it's an intervention of that sort, and um, and um, you know, there's various. I mean, uh, of course, uh, the the best uh, delight uh, I could hope from I could hope for from this is that by um, uh, is that after some publication. Uh, uh, of, of books that people do other sorts of uh, writing and study of platform studies um, and, and looking at the platform level. Uh, not only that they write things about platforms in other uh, publication venues, but also that they bring the discourse about platform into studies that they're doing. You know, so that, uh, uh, I mean, Matt Kirschenbaum's book on uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, which focuses a great deal on the hard disk, um, is not a book about um, a platform. It's not about a, a single computational platform. It's about a component of uh, the computer system that's been very influential. But uh, that's great, you know, that we have a, a study that uh, actually takes that uh, seriously and considers how it relates to the way that we access things. So, so these are, you know, I, I mean, it's nice for us, you know, um, uh, when we have book proposals that aren't exactly platform studies, but that uh, bear on this in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good to see that people are thinking about the platform level in relation to um, uh, other things that they're working on. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Wonderful. I really appreciate it.